Today we are listening to Jean-Baptiste Lully's Overture to the Bourgeois Gentilhomme, um, which you really can't listen to any other composer when you're talking about Moliere. Lully and Moliere had a very close working relationship, um, and this particular overture is actually to the Bourgeois Gentilhomme, one of Moliere's plays. Um, notice the Musically, we're working a little before both Handel and Bach, um, and you can see how, on the one hand, this is sort of a bridge moment between the Renaissance lightness um, and the sort of extreme, like, ostentatiousness of Handel and Bach. Um, you can see, especially, like, there's a certain amount of um, statorianness, a certain amount of uh, authority that this conveys. Part of this is because of the subject matter. The bourgeois gentilhomme is both a, you know, newly rich man, but also completely absurd insofar as he doesn't understand the conventions of the time. Um, and this is communicated, especially with that very, very silly harpsichord, um, which is frequently associated throughout the late 17th and 18th centuries, and into the 18th century, with royalty and wealth and nobility, um, to the point that by the end of the 18th century, it will not be acceptable to play the harpsichord anymore, um, as revolutions start taking place in the neoclassical to sort of displace it, the Rococo. Um, so this moment is a short-lived one in its own right, um, but an interesting one nonetheless, and a very good compliment to Bolliere and his sort of absurd approach towards looking at the world. Welcome back. Today we are talking about Moliere's Don Juan, which is our first opportunity to talk about the second tradition in our class, even though it's, you know, two weeks into the class. Um, the Don Juan tradition. Up until now, we've been primarily focusing on Faust and sort of how the devil especially is portrayed in, in the literature of the time, um, what with Dante's Inferno and, and uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, but now it's time to turn our attention to this other myth um, and sort of look at where it comes from and how Moliere especially is presenting it. Um, I should start just like I did when we were reading Dr. Faustus uh, by Marlowe by emphasizing that this is not the first time this story has been told. Um, just like the Faust book is sort of the, the original source of information about Faust, the, the original, like, presentation of the Faust legend, um, Moliere's Don Juan is borrowing heavily from the original play Don Juan, The Jackal of Seville by Terso de Molina, um, differently than the Faust book. Um, where Faust was apparently a real character that just had a whole bunch of legends and myths sort of like snowball around him, um, gravitate to this character, the, the Don Juan story was itself a play. Um, it never pretended like Don Juan was an actual real person, so far as I know. Um, Terso made Don Juan up, made him from whole cloth. The story of Don Juan is all one story. There has been discussion about possibly Don Juan, the story as told by Terso de Molina, having like picked up various elements of pre-existing legends along the way. Um, the myth that, that people tend to point to or that scholars sort of recognize as being a logical inspiration that sort of like gravitates onto Don Juan here is there's apparently this story about this dude who finds a skull in the woods. Um, like he's walking along, minding his own business, and there's the skull, and because he's not watching where he's going, he kicks the skull. 
Um, and the skull yells at him. And the skull's like, dude, why did you do that? Why did you kick me? And the guy's like, um, I'm sorry, skull. I didn't realize that you were there. I wasn't paying attention to where I was going. And somehow, through some interaction, the skull and the person... Uh, agree that the skull will come over to the person's house for dinner. Like, the person is like, I am so sorry that I kicked you, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? Because, you know, why wouldn't you say that to the talking skull that you came across? And, weirdly, the skull does. Like, the skull comes to dinner. I'm not entirely sure some versions of my understanding, like, it's attached to a body, sometimes it's not. It's hard with these things. Um, again, this is a lot of weird traditions sort of coming together. At any rate, after the skull enjoys dinner at the dude's house, the skull gen then invites the dude over to the skull's house for dinner. And when the guy accepts, the skull drags him to hell. Um, this should sound fairly familiar, because, again, Moliere follows this same rough trajectory, though we should definitely stress here that Moliere kinda doesn't emphasize it. Um, in the original Terso play, this is a big deal. Um, at the very beginning of the play, Don Juan kills the commendatore, the commander, um, the, like, major military leader in the town, the, the well-respected individual. Um, Don Juan has seduced the commander's daughter, and therefore the commander challenges Don Juan to a duel for the sake of her honor. Don Juan roundly defeats him, kills him, and the commander dies upset and miserable. Um, Terso follows the exploits of Don Juan after he, you know, disregards the fact that he just murdered this upstanding mem member of the community. Um as he goes about sleeping with various other women and generally being a dick. Um, at long last, the statue of the commander in the graveyard in the town is met by Don Juan along with his servant, and Don Juan, like in the story with the skull, invites the commander to dinner only to have the commander return the invitation and drag Don Juan to hell for his crimes and misdeeds. Um, and you'll notice that Moliere does this story too, but it is not at all the central focus of what Moliere is doing. Um, and in fact, you'll find that in the Terso play, like, there is a much stronger sense that what the Don Juan is doing is wrong. Um, Terso is telling a parable. He is saying, you know, here is this rich, like, fast-talking liar-slash-hypocrite who seduces all of these women just for his own pleasure and ultimately, you know, ruins their lives. And at the end of the story, he gets what's coming to him. That is what will happen to you if you, you know, mess around with the, the morality imposed by the community and by God. Um, and notice that it is God who ultimately enforces this in the Terso play, as well as here in Moliere. Um, the story of Don Juan ends with him being dragged by supernatural forces to hell, something that he roundly deserves, the, the teller tends to emphasize. But Moliere doesn't stress this as much. Like, it's blink and you miss it. There are, in fact, three scenes where the commander and, and Don Juan interact, but the original slaying of the commander happens completely offstage. It's already happened at the start of the play. And all three of the scenes with Moliere, or with Don Juan and the commander, are really short and really not terribly exciting or even all that funny. Um, like, by a lot of the scenes that are the best in this play have nothing to do with this 
as something approximating the central plot, or at least the central myth that Don Juan is associated with. Instead, Moliere is interested in very many other things. Now that said, most of the beats that you find in the Terso play are also here in Moliere. The character of Don Juan is not very far removed from the character as Terso presents it. What is very different is the way the character is portrayed. So I do want to sort of focus on that here. Um, but before we do, we need to talk about Moliere himself. Um, in all likelihood, unless you have been taking French for a long time, you probably don't know who Moliere is. And yet he's kind of a huge deal. Um, it seems when you study, you know, world literature enough that like virtually every major European country has their one writer. Um, the writer that like radically changes the language and radically changes, you know, what, what the language is perceived as doing that he is like the quintessential artist that defines that culture um so you think of like william shakespeare for for the english you know like everyone in this class has probably been forced to read shakespeare at one point because we consider him the greatest english writer who ever lived in most ways um likewise if you are studying spanish it is only a matter of time until you run into don quixote the work by miguel de cervantes that is considered like the greatest work of the spanish language um dante's inferno is frequently considered to be the greatest work of the nascent italian slash latin language and it's sort of weird state there um, moliere is the french writer um, like, when the French talk about their greatest artists who ever lived, Moliere almost always appears at the top. Um, and like Shakespeare, he was primarily a playwright. Um, just about everything that he wrote that survived is plays. Like Shakespeare, he had a long system of patronage that protected him from ire. Um, although Moliere was a lot better at getting ire than Shakespeare was. Um, but what's so very different about Shakespeare and Moliere is that while Shakespeare, you know, he writes everything. He writes some comedies and the comedies are great. He writes some tragedies and the tragedies are considered some of the greatest works ever written. Um, he writes histories and they're fine. Moliere writes almost exclusively comedies. And what's more, his attitude towards comedy is very different from Shakespeare's attitude towards comedy. Like where Shakespeare presents his comedies with a kernel of like serious profound truth to them, um, where Shakespeare, you know, will end all's well that ends well with, like, serious problems to make the audience sort of question whether it is, in fact, the case that all's well that ends well. Or when Twelfth, Twelfth Night has, you know, the one character who has been, like, locked in a dungeon for half the play, you know, come out and tell everyone that they're all a bunch of assholes there's nuance there like shakespeare is very interested in sort of exploring you know the the apparent contradictions of happiness and sadness um he is willing to say you know it can't all just be fun and games moliere on the other hand is amazing specifically because he doesn't give a shit um like that's very much his mo Moliere does not have these profound dramatic truths to convey to his audience. Instead, he tells rapid-fire jokes at this blistering pace, and it is amazing. Like, his French is, oh, it's gorgeous. Um, so you'll notice that Don Juan definitely falls into that category. But the other thing that Moliere is particularly keen to do is kind of rag on the exact same highfalutin values that Shakespeare is often very keen to uphold. 
Um, Moliere had a lot of trouble getting some of his plays approved. Um, his, some of his other works, like Tartuffe especially, um, Tartuffe is this story about this jerk guy who poses as a priest in order to seduce young women and, like, defends himself by pretending to be this holy, you know, priest. The first text that he wrote was performed once and immediately banned. Um, he wrote a revised text a couple of years later and it ran for a little while before the Catholic Church got mad again and banned it again. Um... Like, the, the depiction of the Catholic priest as, you know, a villainous, scoundrelly monster didn't sit well with the Catholic Church. But note that this is something that he could pull off in the 17th century. Like, at this point, the French court was removed enough from, um, like, the, the will of the clergy from the Catholic Church that if it made Louis XIV laugh, it could still hang out. It could still run at the Palais Royal. Um... It doesn't mean that, you know, Moliere is completely off his rocker here. Um, Don Juan enjoys a similar reputation. Don Juan was performed a few times early in its run and then never played again. Um, it was banned so thoroughly that no revised edition was ever created, no effort to resurrect the play was ever made. Part of that could be that it was not considered Moliere's greatest work, like Tartuffe, The Misanthrope, The Bourgeois Gentilhomme. Those are the big ones for him. Those are the ones that endure, uh, have a very lasting effect. Um, but Don Juan, Don Juan is a weird one, um, and I kind of like it that way. Um, there is something just very dark about what's going on under the hood here in Don Juan. Like, Moliere is perfectly willing to portray Don Juan as a fun character. Um, he is a jerk, and he's enjoying being a jerk, and we enjoy watching him be a jerk. Um, that's kind of what this all comes down to. But the bleakness on display here, like, Moliere has zero interest in the morality at stake, to the point that all of the stuff that made the original Terso play such an important moral fable has been completely banished to the periphery of what's going on here. Moliere undercuts the moral message at every turn. Um, and, like, just keep this in mind as, as we sort of read through it, and definitely keep this in mind when we go on to talk about Mozart's Don Giovanni in our next sort of reading class lecture thing. I still haven't figured out what I'm going to do about that. We'll, we'll sort that out. Um, keep in mind that even Mozart is trying to display the morality at stake. Like, Mo, uh, um, Don Juan is justly punished at the end of Don Giovanni. Here in Moliere, it's a matter of fairly significant indifference. Um, and notice that he doesn't even hide this. Like, he telegraphs this as soon as you start the play. So, once again, shocker, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at that opening speech. But notice how silly the opening speech actually is. You know, when we were talking about the opening speech of Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, it's like Faust pouring over his books and deciding, you know, it's all worthless and he is going to figure out the secrets of the universe like philosophy and law and medicine are all too small too petty for him um when we were talking about milton's paradise lost we have that whole highfalutin speech about you know the pagan and and uh and christian 
um, muses and how the Christian muse will help him fly no middle path, that it will soar over Mount Olympus itself. Even in Dante, that whole opening section with the, the dark forest that he's in, like as a metaphor for his lostness and sin, you know, you get these really impressive, really important themes like thrown at you just in the first words of the text. Notice the theme that Moliere stresses here, though. Here is Scannerell, uh, Don Juan's own companion and the role that Moliere himself played uh, when he would perform the few times that they performed this. Um, Scannerell is holding a snuff box in his hand and he says, I don't care what Aristotle and the philosophers say, there's nothing in this world like snuff. All right-minded people adore it, and anyone who is able to live without it is unworthy to draw breath. It not only clears and delights the brain, but it also inclines the heart towards virtue and helps one to become a gentleman. Haven't you noticed how, as soon as one begins to take it, one becomes uncommonly generous to everybody, ready to present one's box, right and left, wherever one goes? You don't even wait to be asked, but anticipate the desires of others. And it can even be truly said that snuff inspires all its devotees with the principles of honor and virtue. But enough of that! And then we, he goes back to actually like talking about the plot with the other characters who are around, Guzman and Dona Elvira. Notice the whole opening speech here starts with, I don't care what Aristotle and philosophers say, and then turns into a praise, an encomium, a you know song in, in excitement about snuff. Now, if you don't know... Snuff was this powdered substance that people kept in their little snuff boxes throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. The boxes themselves were very ornate, like usually having a fancy snuff box was a, a sign of wealth and uh, importance. The snuff itself is drugs. Like, depending on, you know, where you're getting your drugs from, where you're getting your snuff from, it's probably powdered opium. It could also be crack, like powdered cocaine. Um, and it was pretty normal that you would just take a pinch of snuff out of your box and <laughs> there you go, just keep you going for the next day or two. This was perfectly culturally acceptable. People did this in public. And again, notice how Scannerell is even referring to, you know, you take a pinch of snuff and then you immediately pass your box to your neighbor. It's like bumming cigarettes. You know, you pull out a cigarette from your pack and if somebody else is out, you just offer them a, a smoke. You know, it, it's basic generosity. And notice how Scannerell even emphasizes this generosity. Um, All right-minded people adore it, he says. Everybody loves snuff. And what's more, it inclines the heart towards virtue, helps one to become a gentleman. Haven't you noticed how as soon as one begins to take it, one becomes uncommonly generous, ready to present one's box right and left. You don't even wait to be asked. Moliere is saying right here, like in contrast with Aristotle and Plato and all of the great philosophers who had prescribed ethics, who cares? We've got drugs and drugs make people happy and generous. So why should we give a crap about all these old philosophers and all of their prescriptions about generosity and ethics? Scannerell is basically signaling to us that we are entering a world where the laws of morality very much come in second place to the laws of practicality, to the pragmatic laws. Yeah, generosity is a good thing. Generosity is admirable. Skinnerell is not denying that, but he would much rather the generosity of a snuff box than the generosity of the Nicomachean ethics. 
Um, there's no point in all this scholarship, and Moliere is not going to really focus on all that scholarship. He will take pot shots at it throughout the play. Um, now, as this first act sort of develops, we also get a sense of exactly who it is that we're dealing with here. Um, now, the two main characters that we're going to spend all our time with are Scannarelle on the one hand. Scannarelle is Don Juan's servant, again, the character that Moliere played, and probably the best written of the bunch, because, you know, Moliere enjoyed being a ham. Um, but also, he is a coward, and he is absolutely self-serving, and he absolutely wants to, you know, survive this process. Like, Scannarelle is well aware of the fact that Don Juan is a monster, um, and in fact, like shortly after this, when he's talking to Guzman and Dona Elvira, he has this fairly long speech where he explains what's going on. Like Guzman is upset that Don Juan has disappeared after marrying Dona Elvira. And that stands to reason. Dona Elvira was seduced from a nunnery by Don Juan. So not only is it like seduction, which is bad, you know, don't sleep with other men's daughters. Um, and this is why Guzman is so mad about it. But also she was a nun and Don Juan carried him, her off from her nunnery, thus making her violate her laws and, and vows to God. So Guzman then is mortified by the fact that not only has Don Juan done this, but then Don Juan took off, uh, like vanished, and they're not married anymore. Or it seems that he just left in the middle of the night and now Don Elvira doesn't know what to do because Don Juan has literally destroyed her life at this point. Um, so Guzman says, I certainly don't know what kind of man he can be if he has deceived us like that. I can't understand how after all the love and impetuosity is shown, the homage, the vows, the sighs, the tears, the passionate letters, the protestations, the oft-repeated oaths, his savage determination in forcing even the sacred doors of a convent to gain possession of Dona Elvira, how, after all that, he can have the heart to go back on his word. And Scannerell responds... I can understand it easily enough, and so would you if you were as well acquainted with the fellow as I am. Like, if you knew Don Juan, you would have seen this coming, in short. I don't say that his feelings are changed towards Dona Elvira. I have no sure knowledge of that yet. You know that, by his orders, I set off before him, and since his arrival, he has not spoken to me on the subject. But I ought to warn you, strictly between the pair of us, that in Don Juan, my master, you see the greatest scoundrel that ever walked the earth. Notice, Scannarelle is absolutely bad-talking his master, which is not something he should be doing, by the way. Um, this is part of Scannarelle's strange character, that he sort of, like, hypocritically does not actually care about what his master thinks of him, except insofar as he's worried that his master will, like, beat him up or something. Um, so he goes so far as to say, he is a madman, a dog, a devil, a Turk. Sorry, there's racism. It's the 17th century. This is kind of to be expected. The Turks were perceived as being huge philanderers due to the fact that, like, they had harems, which is a cultural misunderstanding of a frankly gross sort that we do not have the time to investigate terribly deeply here. Um, he goes on, He is a heretic who believes in neither heaven, nor saint, nor God, nor the bogeyman. He lives the life of an absolute brute beast. He is an Epicurean hog, a regular Sardanapalus, who is deaf to every Christian remonstrance and looks on all that we others believe as nothing but old wives' tales. So... Don Juan is not just a monster, he is a faithless monster. He is an atheistic monster. Um, 
when when Skinnerell calls him an Epicurean hog, a regular Sardanapalus, he's talking about these great hedonists, um, or at least misunderstood hedonists. Don Juan takes what he wants, he does what he wants, he does whatever makes him happy in that moment, whatever brings him pleasure, and that's all that he cares about. Um, that's what Skinnerell is saying about him. But what's more, notice he is deaf to every Christian remonstrance and looks at all that we others believe as nothing but old wives' tales. He doesn't believe in God, in short. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in morality. He doesn't believe in some sort of cosmic justice. He doesn't believe in karma in any way. What he believes in is doing what he wants when he wants to, and that's all he cares about. You say he has married your mistress, Skinnerell goes on. He would have done far more than that to gratify his desires. He would have married you, and her dog, and Cat as well. It costs him nothing to marry. That is the best baited trap he has. He marries right and left. Fine lady, ward, town dweller, or country girl. None are too hot or too cold for him. And if he, I were to give you the names of all the women he has married, in this place and that, it would be sundown before I had done. Notice this is fairly different from the Terso play. Um, in Terso, Don Juan doesn't marry his victims. He just seduces the crap out of them wins their favors, and then takes off. Um, at no point does he marry. Um, marriage would be anathema to the Don Juan of the Terso play. Um, however, notice that this Don Juan doesn't care. He has married everyone. He marries them, he takes off, he marries somebody else, he takes off, he marries someone else. Again, this is a world where there is not nearly as much like paperwork, bureaucracy, or infrastructure in place to unite the records of various different towns. Um, the crime that we're talking about here is what is usually referred to as bigamy. Um, like you just took off from whatever family you had before and you found another family. You marry some other woman, not by getting a divorce, because again, no one's checking that, but just by leaving town so nobody knows who you are and now you can marry whoever you like and nobody will assume that will be the wiser. Um, so this Don Juan marries the women that he seduces. He is more than happy to marry them. He doesn't care if the girl is like, hey, I am saving myself from marriage. Don Juan will be like, great, let's find a priest. Um, he doesn't care that he's been married all of these times. And this adds a new dimension to the character. You know, Terso's Don Juan was absolutely selfish and self-involved and, you know, a scoundrel going around killing people, going around seducing women without any interest in, their, in the consequences. But here, this Don Juan is flaunting God. Like, Scannerell even calls him on this when he shows up. He's like, you've got to stop flaunting heaven. You've got to stop mocking heaven, Don Elvira says. Um... This Don Juan is so indifferent to the cares of the Christian universe, to God, to Jesus, to heaven, to hell, that he just goes and does what he wants because he doesn't believe that any consequences can happen to him. Um, which, you know, again, in the Terso play is why it's such a big deal that the statue drags him down to hell. Arguably, it's a big, it would be a big deal here too, except that Moliere just doesn't play it that way. Um, but we'll come back to that. Um, notice that Skinnerell continues by emphasizing this point. 
To finish the picture, I should have to paint with a broader brush still, he goes on. One day the wrath of heaven will strike him, that's for certain. I might as well wait on the devil as wait on him, and he makes me live with such horrors that I wish he was already I don't know where. A great gentleman who is really wicked is a terrible thing, but I must be faithful to him, however I feel. Fear makes me his accomplice. It stifles my feelings, and I often find myself applauding what I loathe with my very soul. Here he comes now to take a walk in the palace. We mustn't be seen together. I have taken you into my confidence quite frankly, rather too frankly perhaps, but I warn you that if ever of this comes to his ears, I shall swear black and blue that you're lying. Notice how Scannerell's interactions with Don Juan go here. He is more than happy to tell Guzman about all of the terrible things that Don Juan has done. All of the women that he has married, the fact that he doesn't care about God or hell or whatever, he is totally willing to say that, but then if Guzman is going to, like, reveal that Skinnerell has said this to Don Juan, his master, he'll deny it. He'll deny it black and blue. Skinnerell does not care about the consequences of lying here. He is too afraid of Don Juan. That is the major characteristic of Skinnerell. He is, first and foremost, a coward. Um, he does not want to get beaten up. He does not want to get killed. He will take whatever steps he can to prevent his own harm from happening. Um, and if that means lying to his master, then that means lying to his master. If that means lying to the people around him, that means lying to the people around him. Scannerell is upset that Don Juan is such a monster, but he is too afraid to correct him. And you will see over and over in this text, Scannerell will start to get on his moralizing, as Don Juan calls it, and Don Juan will just tell him to shut up or he'll start beating him up. There's like one time that Scannerell actually sits down to lecture Don Juan after being threatened, and we'll talk about that in a little while because it is a fairly damning indictment on Moliere's part. Um, but notice, this is what we're starting to understand about Don Juan. This is the first we hear about him, is what Scannerell is telling to Guzman in this, in this passage. But it doesn't take Don Juan long to back this up. Um... After Don Juan confronts Scannerell over talking to Guzman, and he is, like, actually fairly mad, um, they discuss the fact that, surprise, as Scannerell expected, Don Juan has lost his interest in Donna Elvira. Um, she has been won, and therefore he doesn't care about her anymore. Um, she will hang around in the periphery of this story, like, she'll keep showing up uh, during the play to, like, chastise Don Juan for his scurrilousness, um, but Don Juan is done with her, or so it would seem. Um, but Don Juan actually defends himself here, where Scannerell says, you know, Scannerell is starting to judge him. Um, he, you know, towards the, the end of this, or later on in this scene, he says, um, with no disrespect to you, I think that you have some new affair on hand, Scannerell says. And Don Juan replies, ah, so that's what you think, is it? Yes. Then by God, you think right. I freely admit that a new object has driven Dona Elvira's image quite out of my heart. And Scannerell's response, There now, what did I say? I know my Don Juan like the palm of my hand. Your heart is the greatest nomad that ever was. It likes to be always on the move. It hates to stay in one place for long together. Scannerell is being careful here. Like, by calling his heart a nomad, he's not condemning Don Juan. Because again, Don Juan is right there and will beat him up if he gets too moralizing. But nonetheless, Scannerell is kind of, like, hedging about this. But Don Juan's response is to defend himself. Am I not right, then, to let it follow its bent? Um, 
Skinnerell hesitates. Well, sir, answer me. Certainly your honor's right, if that's your honor's will, that can't be denied. But if it wasn't your honor's will, perhaps it would be a different story. Notice that Skinnerell is now caught. Like Don Well is Don Juan is telling him, What? I want your opinion. And Skinnerell's like, Your opinion is not gonna make you happy, so yeah, I guess you can do what you want. Like, please don't hurt me. And Don Juan says, Come now, I give you free reign to say exactly what you think. And Skinnerell responds, Very well then, sir. I'll tell you quite frankly that I don't think you behave in the right way at all. I think it's very wicked to go loving right and left as you do. So there it is. There's Skinnerell's legit opinion right here at the beginning. I think that you shouldn't do this. And Don Juan responds with a speech. So you think we should be tied forever to the first object that takes our fancy, forswear the rest of the world, and have no eyes for anyone else. A nice thing indeed to take seriously to heart such a false point of honor as fidelity, to bury myself forever in one passionate affair, and to be dead from henceforth to everything that my eyes tell me is worthy of devotion. No, no. Constancy is only fit for idiots. So already Don Juan is telling us constancy, fidelity, faithfulness to your spouse is foolishness only fit for idiots um and notice that how he's phrasing this as though it would be dishonesty to do that that you think it's ridiculous that uh, he thinks it's ridiculous that we should be tied to the first object that takes our fancy and have no eyes for everyone else that's to deny the beauty in the world as far as don juan is concerned he goes on every pretty woman has the right to attract us and the mere accident of being seen first should not rob the others of their privilege of subjugating our hearts. Beauty delights me wherever I find it, and I fall a willing slave to the sweet force with which it seeks to bind me. However my heart may be engaged, the love I have for one woman has no power to make me unfair to the rest. My eyes see the merits of each, and pay homage and tribute wherever it is due. If I see an attractive woman, my heart is hers, and had I ten thousand hearts, I would give them all to a face that was worthy of them. After all, the growth of a passion has infinite charm, and the true pleasure of love is its variety. Notice there's something really heartfelt about this. Like, Don Juan is not deceiving the women that he falls in love with. He has, in fact, fallen in love with them. Like, deeply, passionately, head over heels for every woman that crosses his path. He is not restraining himself at all. And he even considers it unfair to limit that like, when he says, you know, um, however my heart may be engaged, the love I have for one woman has no power to make me unfair to the rest, what he is saying is, if I indeed fell in love with one woman, it would be unfair for me to then cut myself off from the feelings I had for anyone else. That would be unjust. That would be an oppression of a kind. Now, this is bullshit. Like, I realize that in our contemporary culture, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like, by all means, you can absolutely let your heart wander to your heart's content. For Don Juan, though, this is ruining the lives of all of the women he finds himself attracted to. Like, he is destroying young women who haven't found, you know, a husband yet, which destroys their economic possibilities. Like, in order to successfully survive, a woman needs to marry a man and get into, you know, some kind of economic stability. That sucks, absolutely, and absolutely we are right to sort of criticize that, but you can't fix it by further subjugating these women, by Don Juan just taking advantage of them left and right. 
you know, the whole thing about Don Juan is he's marrying these women, and these women believe that he, they are receiving economic security. Like, notice how Charlotte responds when Don Juan seduces her in Act 2. In Act 2, Charlotte is engaged to Piero, and that seems to be working out. Piero is at least incredibly devoted to Charlotte. But Don Juan shows up, seduces Charlotte, and is promising to marry her, and Charlotte's response to Piero is, I'm breaking it off with us because I'm going to be rich. Like, I'm going to have this big fancy house, and I'm going to be rich, and I'm, you know, you would be happy for me for this advantageous marriage. The fact that I'm this peasant girl who was immediately elevated to this high place. But we know that Don Juan isn't going to do that. Yeah, he'll marry her. No, he's not going to give her a bunch of money and, a, and an estate and financial stability. Instead, what's likely to happen in this situation is Don Juan's going to marry Charlotte, take off the next night, and Charlotte's going to be left at home and no one will touch her because she's another man's wife, even though that man is not supporting her, even though that man is not responsible for her, not taking the responsibility he should show. So when Don Juan says it is unfair to the women that I, my heart be, you know, pinned down to just the first person I see, that sucks for them. You want to know what's really unfair to these women? The fact that he's willing to, you know, use the situation to his advantage. The fact that he's this rich guy who swoops into town, says, hey, I'm going to make you my bride, and then takes off at the first opportunity. That sucks. That is destroying all these lives. That is destroying every town that he comes across. And he doesn't give a shit. It is unfair to him, perhaps, that he should be bound down, but he needs to regard his responsibility. That about it. But he goes on. The growth of a passion has infinite charm, and the true pleasure of love is its variety. How deliciously sweet to lay siege to a young heart, to watch one's progress day by day, to overcome by means of vows, tears, and groans, the delicate modesty of a soul which sighs and surrender, to break down little by little the weakening resistance, the maidenly scruples that her honor dictates, and bring her at last where we would have her be. But once we have had our way with her, there is no more to wish for. The best is behind us, and so we slumber on, lulled by our love, until a new object appears to reawaken our desire and lure us on with the charms of a new conquest. There is nothing so sweet as to overcome the resistance of a beautiful woman, and where they are concerned I have the ambition of a conqueror who goes from triumph to triumph and can never be satisfied. Nothing shall stand in the way of my desire. My heart is big enough to love the whole world, and I could wish with Alexander that there were more worlds still, so that I might carry yet further my prowess and love. Notice, Don Juan's in it for the conquest. He perceives it as conquest. This is the joy of falling in love for him. To break down the resistance of a young woman, bring her to the moment that they are willing to consummate their feelings for one another, and at that point there's nothing more to wish for, so Don Juan takes off. That's this asshole. Now, we need to emphasize both sides of this here. On the one hand, yes, this is totally monstrous, this is absolutely hypocritical, this is a violation of every moral that is in place in this society at this time, but notice too that Moliere makes it really compelling. This is poetic. Don Juan is being, like, weirdly honest here. As much as Don Juan is, you know, filthy and horrible and, and messy with all these women's lives, he seems to be doing it out of some kind of earnestness. You know, he is true to himself, even if he is untrue to everyone around him. He does not lie. Instead, he is 
engaged in something that the society cannot abide. Um, and there's something admirable about this character. Like, Moliere is presenting him to be tempting, desirable, fun to watch. Like, there is a clear disconnect in the mind of everyone who is seeing this play that Don Juan is simultaneously ruining these lives and also having a hell of a time doing it. Um, and this is the, the trouble here. Now, Scannerell immediately responds, how you do run on just as if you'd learnt it all by heart out of a book. And when Don Juan asks him for an actual response, he says and admits, heavens, I say, I don't know what to say. You twist everything so that I could almost say you were right if I didn't know very well that you were wrong. I had the most uplifting things to say, and now you've put them all out of my head. But never mind. Another time I'll have it all written down on paper so that I can meet you on more equal terms. He is bamboozling Scannerell as well. Like, not that he's doing it intentionally. Again, it seems that Don Juan actually legitimately believes that whole speech that he delivered. I should not be pinned down. It would be unfair of me to devote my attention to just one woman. It is the joy of conquest that I enjoy, and therefore I cannot, like, settle, but instead I must conquer the woman, bring down her resistance, receive what I desire, the sexual act, and then once that's done, there's nothing more for me to want, so I take off and find somebody else. That's all it is for Don Juan. And it is so poetic, it is so charming in its way that Scannerell can't come up with a good response. And neither can we. Like, Moliere writes Don Juan to be really, really cool. Like, really, really powerful in that way. Um, this sounds really good until you think about the consequences. That's the game that Moliere is playing here, and that's why everyone is so mad at him about this play. Um, because this is the sort of position that Don Juan is going to be presented in this whole time. Now let's look at this in practice. Like, perhaps one of my favorite scenes in this whole play, especially because, you know, when it's staged, it's amazing. It's absolutely going to suck with me, like, just telling you. But the scene where, like, he has been seducing Mathurine, the peasant girl, um, and then, like, lost her because their ship went aground, and then they're rescued from the from the sea, and they're brought back into the town by Pierrot, and all of a sudden Don Juan sees Pierrot's girlfriend and fiancé Charlotte, and now he's got nothing but eyes for Charlotte just in time for Mathurine to come back. So here we have this really awkward situation where Don Juan has just promised Charlotte to marry her, and he has already promised Mathurine to marry her, and Charlotte and Mathurine are in the same room together and we get this wild scene where Don Juan is running back and forth to each of the young ladies promising them the world while also promising the other one the world as the two of them are fighting each other um, like he bounces back and forth like this ping pong ball um, eat, making promises the whole way um, so when Scannerell sees Mathurine, like, he knows what's going to happen. So we've got this, oh ho, oh ho! And Mathurine says, sir, what are you doing there with Charlotte? Are you courting her as well? And Don Juan responds, aside to Mathurine, like, going over to her side. No, no, it's, it's she who wants to marry me, but I've told her I am engaged to you. And then Charlotte is like, what's Mathurine got to say to you? And Don Juan is back to Charlotte. She's jealous of my speaking to you. She insists that I'm engaged to her, but I've told her that you're the one I want. And Mathurine responds, what, Charlotte? And Don Juan's over to Mathurine again. It's no use talking to her. She's very obstinate. And then back to Charlotte. Nothing you say will have any effect. You'll never shake her delusion. Then back to Mathurine. It's impossible to make her hear reason. 
reason. She's as obstinate as the devil. Don't say anything to her. She's mad. She's let, let her alone. She's quite out of her mind. And they're she, meanwhile, Matherine and Charlotte are yelling back and forth at each other, like, "What are you doing? Who are you? What are you doing with my?" fiance and finally don juan after ping-ponging back and forth between these two women the whole time like they finally are pinning him to the ground who are you marrying who is going to be you know your wife don juan has this speech what do you want me to say you both maintain that i've promised to marry you isn't it sufficient that each of you knows the truth without my having to say anything further why make me repeat myself surely the one who has my promise can safely ignore the claims of the other and if i keep my word what is she to worry about argument leads nowhere it's deeds that count not words and that's how i mean to settle the question between you when i marry it will be seen at once which of the two has possession to my heart in short, he delivers a speech that both of them will interpret to be directed towards them. Each woman will go away from this speech believing that they are the one that Don Juan has committed to and that therefore they have nothing to worry about. He will in fact marry them. Because he will in fact marry them. He will marry both Charlotte and Matherine, sleep with both of them, and then take off and never see either of them again. And then it'll be up to them to sort out exactly how, that, how to make this work. Notice that this is absurd. It's hilarious because of the way that it's staged. The fact that you've got Don Juan bouncing back and forth across the stage, trying to convince both of these women that he is in love with them, which he in fact is, like he in fact believes that he is. He just knows that if they find out that he loves the other one as well, it's all going to go south. He has to break down both of their resistance simultaneously without letting the other one know that there's actually two women in his life. And of course, both of these women are in addition to Dona Elvira, in addition to the commander's daughter, in addition to all the other women he has seduced and married at this point in time. Um, and there's a joy about this. Like, it's meant to be funny. Like, laugh out loud, fall down in the aisles, funny. Like, Moliere wants to make it absurd. He enjoys the slapstick of it, the ridiculous wordplay. Scannerelle, you know, seeing Matherine coming in and, like, gleefully waiting for everything to fall apart. Like, and it never does. Like, Moliere is playing with the tension of the scene, letting us, you know, pushing us along to this point where finally Don Juan lets everyone believe what they are, and it never falls apart. Like, he's performing this impressive high-wire act right here on stage. Um, it's amazing to watch. Um, and this is, this joy is throughout the entire play. Like it's just constantly ebullient. That's Moliere's great power. You know, where Shakespeare, I know that you've probably read your fair share of Shakespeare plays where you were just clutching your head in agony, like, oh God, I don't understand what's going on and it is moving so slowly and why can't they just kill each other already? Here, it's very much the other way around. Like, every line is this fast-paced move into another scene, another crazy situation. It's like a sitcom on steroids, but with 17th century French prose. Um, it's amazing in that sense, and very modern in that sense. Um, but notice, too, where Skinnerell falls in this. Because immediately after Don Juan leaves, like, he just takes off and lets Charlotte and Matherine sh sort it out, he leaves Skinnerell to pick up the pieces yet again, just like he did with Dona Elvira. 
Um, and Skinnerell immediately turns into the same person that he was with Guzman. He's immediately trying to emphasize that Don Juan shouldn't be trusted. He's trying to save the two girls, in short. Poor simple girls, he says. I feel sorry for your innocence. I can't bear to see you rush to your doom. Take my advice, both of you. Don't believe a single word he says and stay in your village. But notice the stage direction that Don Juan comes in at the back and is watching Skinnerell tell these women this. My master is a rogue, he says. His only purpose is to seduce you, as he has seduced hundreds of others. He's ready to marry the whole human race, and... Then Skinnerell sees Don Juan out of the corner of his eye. It's a lie! And whoever says so, you can tell him he's a liar. My master is not ready to marry the whole human race. He is not a rogue. He has no intention of seducing you, and he has not seduced hundreds of others. Ah, there he is. He'll tell you the same himself. Notice that there's actually a strange kinship between the hypocrisy of Don Juan and the hypocrisy of Scannerell. Just as Don Juan was bouncing back and forth between Charlotte and Mathurine, assuring both of them, yes, he loves them specifically, and the other woman is a liar, and you shouldn't pay any attention to what she has to say, Scannerell is caught between his moral responsibility to these women and to Don Juan, who will beat the crap out of him if, if he finds out that he's speaking badly about him. So here we have the exact same dynamic. Don Juan bouncing back and forth between two poles, Charlotte on the one hand, Mathurine on the other, and then Scannerell caught in the same situation. You know, I absolutely believe that Don Juan is a scoundrel and he will actually, you know, destroy you and your reputation. Oh, look who it is. That's totally a lie. And Don Juan's awesome. And you should totally marry him. He is a man of honor. I vouch for him myself. And finally, Scannerell concludes only an idiot would say anything else because Scannerell doesn't want to have the crap kicked out of him. Um, which is even more sad because immediately after that, Don Juan finds out that like there's a bunch of people tr looking for him to kill him. And his first thought is, I'm going to dress up Scannerell as myself and then like he can die in my place, which Scannerell wants no part of. Um, so keep this in mind. This is who Don Juan is here. Um, and unlike so many of the other portrayals of Don Juan, which will sort of play with this, you know, is he a desirable, indulgent, almost fantasy character, or is he in fact someone we should despise, someone who we should hate, someone who hurts people? Um, this tension will always exist with Don Juan. Like, he is simultaneously the guy every man wants to be, and also the guy who is the absolute worst and is, you know, absolutely taking advantage of his circumstances. There's a classist dimension here because he's rich and he just does what he wants and gets away with it because, you know, what are they going to do? And there's also this weirdly moral dimension to it that, you know, he is apparently doing what he loves, that Don Juan is kind of admirable for the honesty, the earnestness, the, you know, he, he knows what he is. He's not deceiving himself. He's not deceiving others. He wears who he is on his sleeves, and the fact of the matter is, if people can't deal with who he is, then that's their problem, not his. Now, he's an asshole, and we should never lose sight of that, but at the same time, he's the kind of asshole you want to become. He's the kind of asshole who you wish you could be. He is sort of a fantasy character. 
I suspect the best, like, modern incarnation of Don Juan, as much as, you know, we... There are, in fact, modern incarnations of Don Juan, modern retellings of this story, but I suspect the character who most, like, parallels him is actually James Bond. Like, James Bond does everything Don Juan does. James Bond goes to, you know, wild new locales. He sleeps with all of the women. He shoots up anybody he wants to, and he can get away with it, and nobody cares. And he always, at the end of the day, gets his man and goes back and is perfectly happy. Like, Don Juan, like James Bond, is kind of a fantasy character. Unlike Don Juan, we're not supposed to think about the moral dimension with James Bond. Like, when we do, the fantasy disintegrates, um, and it becomes a bit of a problem. There are exceptions, like the more modern Daniel Craig movies, like Casino Royale especially, um, kind of meditates on the violence of James Bond and whether or not we should actually admire that, whether or not there are actually consequences to what James Bond has been doing. Um, but especially the earlier movies, like virtually all of the Roger Moore runs and quite a bit of the, the Sean Connery run, it's very much just he's a fun character who does all the stuff you wish you could do but always gets away with it. Um, whereas Don Juan, you know, will in fact get dragged to hell at the end of all this. Um, so keep that tension in mind, um, especially as you go on to the Mozart uh, opera as well, because Mozart is doing some of the same stuff, but in a fairly different way. Um, but the other thing that Moliere really wants to talk about is how shitty the world actually is. Like, as much as Don Juan is kind of a monster in his own right, Don Juan is a monster because society can't deal with him. He is a monster due to societal standards that Don Juan himself does not embrace. Like, here are all of these Christians running around saying, you're a bad person because you slept with that lady and you didn't actually hold, do your promise. And Don Juan's like, nah, I don't care about your Christianity. It's dumb and I hate it. Notice that Moliere is pretty quick to pick fights with a lot of the systems in place that Don Juan generally rejects. Like, when Scannerell asks Don Juan what is his basic philosophy, like here at the beginning of Act 3, um, he starts firing these questions like, do you believe in hell? No. Do you believe in the devil? No. Do you believe in an afterlife? No. Do you believe in Santa Claus? No. And finally... Don Juan is asked, what do you believe in? And Don Juan's response is, I believe that two and two make four, Scannerell, and four and four make eight. And that's it. That's all we get. Don Juan is eminently practical. Don Juan is just interested in who he is and what makes sense and doing what makes sense, which in his mind is getting as much pleasure as he possibly can, sleeping with all the women he can, marrying all the women he can. And since there do not seem to be any consequences from heaven at this point, why should Don Juan worry about them? No one can punish him, so he just does what he wants. Um, Notice, too, that Moliere has been quick to deny not just religion, but philosophy in that whole speech that Scannerell had about snuff. He is quick to def deny honor as well. Like, the Don Juan swoops in to save Don Carlos from a, a band of bandits, and Don Carlos is very grateful and explains that he is actually looking for Don Juan so they can kill him for abusing Dona Elvira. And Don Juan is just like, yeah, well, if you, I happen to be a very close friend of Don Juan's by necessity, and if I, if Don Juan fights, I will have to fight with him because you know he is Don Juan. Again, Moliere is playing with the wordplay here; it's fairly brilliantly written. 
Um, but notice that Don Carlos ends up in a really tough quandary. Don Alonso shows up and is like, Don Carlos, why are you hanging out with our mortal enemy? And Don Carlos is like, what mortal enemy? Don Alonso says, you know, Don Juan. Don Carlos is suddenly torn. Because on the one hand, he requires the defense of Don Juan for his honor. Don Juan just saved his life. But at the same time, Don Carlos needs to satisfy his honor by killing Don Juan. So when Don Alonso emphasizes that honor is everything, um, he has this speech, like right towards the uh, scene four of, of Act 3, um, a service rendered by an enemy has no claim on our gratitude. Honor is more precious than life. Don Carlos suddenly can't do honor. He is both honor bound to kill Don Juan and honor bound to protect Don Juan. Honor is being portrayed here as absurd, as something unsatisfiable. What Don Alonso believes that honor is more precious than life is here made ridiculous by the situation. Don Juan, through his, you know, jumping into the fight, which is itself a very Don Juan thing to do. It demonstrates how courageous Don Juan is. It demonstrates how, you know, Don Juan is uninterested in, you know, the alliances in play. He is just, he just likes to fight. Um, he does, again, just what he wants. Don Juan is consistent in that way. Don Carlos now cannot be consistent. He cannot simultaneously satisfy his honor and do either thing, killing Don Juan or saving Don Juan. Don Carlos and Don Alonso and basically everyone who was trying to kill Don Juan are stopped in their tracks by Don Juan's actions. Um, again, Don Juan appears as the only consistent character in the scene. The only character who can afford to be consistent because he didn't have some artificial moral standard to stand up to. Honor wasn't important to Don Juan, and as a consequence, Don Juan doesn't need to worry about these moral quandaries. Notice, too, that before this scene, they take their pot shots at medicine, too. Like, this is one of my favorite little passages. Um, remember, Don Juan was thinking of having Scannerell dress up as him so he wouldn't be killed by Don Carlos and his posse. Um, Scannerell instead has them dress up as peasants. So Don Juan is dressed up in a country outfit, like a peasant outfit, and Scannerell is dressed up as a doctor. And this gets kind of ridiculous. Um, Don Juan says that his outfit certainly suits him, and Scannerell says, yes, it's good, isn't it? It's the dress of an old doctor, which was left in pawn at the place where I got it. And it cost me a pretty penny, too, I can tell you. But do you know, sir, it has already given me a certain status. People bow to me in the streets, and some have even asked my advice as if I was learned in the science. How do you mean? asks Don Juan. Why, five or six country people who saw me go by came to consult me about their ailments. And, of course, you told them that you knew nothing about it. Oh, no, not me. I was go wasn't going to disgrace my dress. I held forth on their illnesses and prescribed for them all. So Scannerell dresses up as a doctor, and people start showing up to him. They start asking him, what is your advice? My brother is sick. What do I do? So-and-so has the fever. What should I do? And Scannerell gives them advice. He is not going to disgrace his outfit. Like, even Don Juan is a little taken aback by this, um, but I suspect more out of amusement than anything else. So he asks, what remedies did you give them then? And Skinnerell says, heaven, sir, I put down the first thing that came into my head. I wrote my prescriptions at random. It will be a good joke if they get cured after all and come to thank me. And notice Don Juan's reply. And why shouldn't they? 
Why shouldn't you enjoy the same advantage as other doctors? They're no more responsible for their cures than you are. Their whole art is sheer humbug. All they do is take the credit for a bit of luck. You have as much right as they have to profit by the patient's good fortune and have attributed to your medicine what is really due to natural causes or mere chance. Notice Don Juan, and Moliere by extension in this case, is taking a pot shot at science itself. Like, as much as Don Juan is willing to say, you know, two and two make four, those are my principles, he is also not willing to pay any attention to medicine, to doctors. And it gets even worse. Um, so Scannerell says, you know, what, sir, you're a heathen about medicine as well? And Don Juan replies, it is one of mankind's greatest delusions. Scannerell says, you mean you don't believe in senna or cassia or emetic wine? Why should I believe in them? You must have a very unbelieving soul, but look what a reputation emetic wine has gotten the last few years. Its wonders have won over the most skeptical. Why, only three weeks ago, I saw a wonderful proof myself. What was that? A man was at the point of death for six whole days. They didn't know what to do with him. Nothing had any effect. Then suddenly they decided to give him a dose of emetic wine. And he recovered? No, he died. An admirable effect, truly. What? For six whole days he couldn't die, and that finished him off at once. Could anything be more effective? Notice Scannerell and Don Juan's conversation here about emetic wine, which is just, you know, some random miracle cure thing. This is on par with, like, you know, people who prescribe Vicks Vapor Rub for virtually everything, or, you know, take two Tylenol for whatever ailment you have, and it'll fix it. This is like an old wives' cure, basically. And Scannerell points out, you know, here is this man. He was on the point of death for six weeks or six days. They gave him a medic wine and he immediately died. It's a miracle. He wouldn't die for six days and the medic wine finished him off right there. Moliere, the joke here that Moliere is telling is that it reverses what we usually think of as the doctor's art. You know, doctors are supposed to heal people. People who are, you know, on the verge of death, who are sick and, and dying, they need a doctor to help them to stop dying. But instead, the death is the cure. The emetic wine killed him and cured him on the spot. That's how it's presented. The doctors, like those men of honor, like the philosophers, are presented as absurd here. There's no virtue in it. There's no reason to practice medicine or trust those who do. As Don Juan emphasizes, why shouldn't you enjoy the same advantage of the doctors? Their art is sheer humbug. Why not take credit for your cures? Why not take credit for dumb luck? Because that's all medicine ever was for Don Juan. Notice, too, that the obligations, like responsibilities, are also on trial here. Monsieur de Manche comes over to Don Juan's house to collect his debt, and Don Juan acknowledges that, yes... He is indebted to Monsieur de Manche, like Monsieur de Manche, he owes Monsieur de Manche money. Um, so notice how Don Juan gets out of the situation. Um, no, on the contrary, he tells Skinnerell, tell Monsieur de Manche to come up. It's very bad policy to hide oneself from creditors. They must be paid with something. I know the way to send them away satisfied without giving them a penny. Ah, come in, Monsieur de Manche. I am delighted to see you. My rascals shall smart for not letting you up at once. It's true I had given orders that no one was to be admitted, but that was not meant for you. My door will always be open to you. Mm, I am most humbly obliged to you, sir. Damn it, you rogues. I'll teach you to leave Monsieur de Manche to kick his heels in an antechamber. You shall learn a little more discrimination. Please say no more about it, sir. What? Deny me to you? To Monsieur de Manche, my best friend? Monsieur, I am most devoted servant. I came to... A seat there for Monsieur de Manche. 
I shall do very well as I am, sir. By no means. I want you to come here and sit by me. It, it's really not necessary, sir. Take this stool away and bring an armchair. You can't be serious. I... No, no, I know what's due to you. I wish there were to be no distinction between us. Sir, come, sit down. There's no occasion at all, sir. I have very little to say. I would sit down, I beg of you. No, no, sir, I'm quite all right. I came to... I won't listen unless you sit down. Very well then, sir, if you wish it. I, I hope I see you well, Monsieur Dimanche. Oh, yes, sir, thank you kindly. I have come to... You have a regular fund of good health. Full lips, fresh color, bright eyes. I, I would... How is Madame Dimanche, your wife? In good health, sir, I thank God. A splendid woman. She was your very humble servant, sir. I came, and Claudine, your little girl, how is she? Quite well. What a pretty little girl she is. I adore her. You do her too much honor, sir. I And little Colin, does he make as much noise as ever with his little drum? Just the same, sir. I And your little dog, Brusquet, does he, does he still growl as fiercely and bite the legs of everyone who comes to the house? Notice every time that Monsieur Dimanche tries to get a word out, Don Juan is immediately cutting him off with kindness, with pleasantries. Sit down, get the armchair. How's your wife? How's your kid? How's your dog? Like, you are my best friend, Monsieur Dimanche. Nothing will ever be denied to you here. I would give the world for you. And yet, he refuses to let Monsieur Dimanche get out the fact that he's here to collect his money. If Monsieur Dimanche never gets the opportunity to ask for his money, then Don Juan has never, never feels the obligation to give him his money. Don Juan can be as nice to him as he wants, and as long as Monsieur Dimanche can't get two words out, then Don Juan has never violated his hospitality and never violated his responsibilities. Don Juan sneaks out of his responsibilities this way. And notice, just like we said with Scannerell, you know, trying to get out of uh, lying in this two-faced way to Charlotte and Mathurine, as soon as Monsieur Dimanche brings up the fact that Scannerell has a dead as well, Skinnerell starts doing the exact same thing. Um, Skinnerell immediately, like, offers him a torch to light his way out of the place. Skinnerell, like, offers him all of his friendship, and then there's literally a stage direction for, for Skinnerell to, like, kick him off the stage. Like, to just push him right off the stage into the audience. Um, this is how Don Juan functions. He has no responsibilities. He can always get out of them. And notice that when he originally introduced this, he emphasized, I will give him what he wants. I know the way to send them away satisfied without giving them a penny. Don Juan doesn't care about his financial responsibility, but the way that he perceives it, he is still making them happy. Monsieur Dimanche feels cared about, feels respected, feels well taken care of, even though Monsieur Dimanche can never actually collect his bill. That's how Don Juan works. Don Juan sees himself as being generous and kind and true and faithful and all of these things. The one person who has anything on Don Juan that Don Juan really is upset about and really is frustrated about is his father. Notice Don Louis comes just to give this long, involved tirade about how awful Don Juan is. Um, it is easy to see that my coming is unwelcome and causes you more embarrassment than pleasure. Each of us is a thorn in the side of the other, and if you are weary of me, I am equally weary of your bad behavior. Alas, we little know what we are doing when, instead of living, leaving to God the choice of what is good for us, we try to be wiser than he and pester him with our blind and ill-considered longings. To have a son was the dearest wish of my heart, for which I never cease to pray, and this son, granted at last to my unwearying petition, has made my life a misery and a burden. 
burden instead of being as I'd hoped its joy and consolation. Do you think I can see without shame and indignation this continued course of disgraceful actions? And he just goes on. Like, oh, Don Juan, you are the worst. I cannot believe the dishonor you have brought on your family. I can't believe the dishonor you've brought upon your name, your lineage, your household. Birth is of no account unless accompanied by nobility of character, Don Luis says. He's chastising Don Juan over and over, and Don Juan doesn't want to hear it. Finally, Don Juan manages to kick him out. Don Luis does not want to stay in Don Juan's house. And Don Juan's response is, make haste and die. The sooner the better. Every dog should have his day. No father ought to go on living after his son is of age. Just like Don Juan has no respect for philosophy, Don Juan has no respect for religion, Don Juan has no respect for responsibilities, to, for debts, for honor, Don Juan has no respect for family either. Make haste and die, he says of his father. Hurry up and die already. And it's calling after him. Like, he doesn't even hide it. Um, is shocked by this. Like, he actually goes so far as to say, you are wrong. And Don Juan threatens him about it. Um, this is the one place where Don Juan's easygoing nature is sort of pulled away for a moment. Don Luis actually does frustrate him. Don Juan can't, like, out-money him or out-power him or out-talk him. Um, Don Juan just has to take it in this case. But Don Juan finds a way to beat this. And honestly, this is probably the biggest change in Don Juan's character over the course of this play. That when Don Luis comes again, Don Juan has apparently reformed himself. Um, but before we get to that, we have to talk about the last thing that Don Juan really doesn't have any respect for. And what Moliere really doesn't have any respect for. And that's love. Like... I know that Don Juan falls madly in love with every woman that he sees, that he is, you know, marrying everyone that he sees, that in that sense he really does have incredibly high respect for love. But notice that Moliere is presenting this as totally separate from what is usually understood to be love, like love between husband and wife, love as a responsibility to one's partner rather than just responsibility to oneself. Notice that the one character who we do see who is in fact like legitimately in love is Pierrot. Um, Piero asks Charlotte, like, why don't you love me? And back in act two, and Piero explains that, like, he does all the things he can for her. Um, every time that he can, he, like, buys ribbons for her and, and neckbands and all sorts of things. He does everything he can to, to sort of, like, celebrate Charlotte. Um, and yet, Charlotte does not respond. Now, Charlotte replies, like, but what do you want me to do? What do you want me to be? Why, why do you say this? And Piero's response is, no, you don't love me. And yet all I does all I can to make you. I buys you ribbons from every peddler that comes along without one word of complaint. I breaks, breaks my neck to get blackbirds for you out of the nest. I gets the hurdy-gurdy man to play for you on your birthday. And all the time I'm butting my head against the stone wall. It be it neither good nor honest not to love folks as love we. So Charlotte is treated well by Piero. But when she asks, don't I love you properly? No, wouldn't that be so? It'd be easily seen. One plays a thousand little monkey tricks on folks when one loves from the bottom of one's heart. Look at fact, Tomasa. How mad he she be after young Robin. She be forever about him and annoying him and never gives him a moment, a minute's peace. She be always playing some trick on her, on him, or giving him a thump as she passes. Well, the other day, when he was sitting on the stool, she pulled it from under him and he fell all his length on the floor. That's how folks does when they love. Notice 
Thomas Pierrot understands love in terms of playing practical jokes on people, pulling the stool out from an, another person while they're sitting at the bar. That's the version of love he understands here. And as soon as Don Juan starts sweeping Charlotte off her feet, Charlotte responds to Pierrot by saying, if you really loved me, you would let me be taken away by this gentleman. You would let me be seduced. That's warped. Like, Pierrot himself is really jealous, like to the point that when Charlotte says this, if you love me, Pierrot, you should be pleased to see me a fine lady, Pierrot responds, not me, I'd rather see you dead than belong to another. There's something earnest about that, his jealousy, and yet there's something kind of monstrous about the bluntness of it. Moliere presents love in this sort of twisted and warped way. Pierrot doesn't really understand love. He doesn't understand how Charlotte is trying to love him, even though he is properly trying to love Charlotte, and yet when it ultimately reaches its expression, it is, I'd rather see you dead than in the arms of another. Moliere is pointing out that this is kind of warped, kind of wrong. If love is really all that selfless, wouldn't it look different? Is it, in fact, selfless, then? Because notice all of these characters are, in fact, like, at their root, selfish. Um, the one possible exception is Dona Elvira. And even then, it's kind of tricky to see that because she spends all of her time berating Don Juan over how he has misused her. Notice, too, though, that the one time that we see Don Juan actually thinking about a, a woman for the second time, it is in fact Dona Elvira, but notice the situation. Dona Elvira comes to Don Juan and says, moved by this pure and perfect love, I come to bring you a warning from heaven to try to draw you back from the precipice over which you are rushing to destruction. I know the disorders of your life and the same heaven which has touched my heart and opened my eyes to the irregularities of my own behavior has inspired me to seek you out and deliver its message. Don Elvira is giving Don Juan another chance. I have come back. I am praying for you. I am trying to save you. By God's grace, I have renounced forever my mad and unruly passions. And once more in the convent, I ask for no more of life than time to expatiate my sins. And by a severe penance, win pardon for the crimes into which a shameful passion has plunged me. But lost to the world though I am, it would be a lasting grief to me if once I had loved so dearly became a fearful example of the justice of God and a joy above all others if I might only prevail on you to turn aside the deadly blow which threatens you. For pity's sake, Don Juan, as I, my last request, grant me this sweet satisfaction. With tears, I beg you to look to your salvation. This is the one character who is showing this altruism, who is actually concerned for another person. She actually does care about Don Juan. She wants his salvation. She prays for him. Her decision is, I'm going back to the convent. I will not stay here with you. And notice... Don Juan's response is, it's getting late, madam. Won't you stay here? We will do our best to make you comfortable. No, Don Juan, Don Elvira responds, do not try to detain me. I assure you, madam, it would make me most happy if you would stay. Don Elvira says, no, no, let us waste no time in idle argument. Think only of my warning and let me go on my way alone. She leaves and Don Juan says, do you know, I still have some slight feeling for her. There's something rather charming about this strange new fancy. Her simplicity of dress, her sorrow, and her tears have reawakened some few sparks of a fire I had thought quite burnt out. Notice when Dona Elvira rejects Don Juan. Now he's interested in her again. 
Like we just said earlier in the lecture, Don Juan is only interested in a woman so he can conquer her, so he can overcome her resistance, so he can seduce her. Dona Elvira, by rejecting Don Juan, has now made herself cut off, which makes her a new conquest. That's also warped. Like, the closest Don Juan comes to actually wanting to go back and enjoy a relationship that he has had in the past, the relationship of, you know, husband and wife, Dona Elvira is the one person who has been chasing him this entire play, trying to get him to be honest with her, to sort of make themselves husband and wife. And now, because she has turned away, because she has stopped chasing him, now Don Juan is interested. That's love for Moliere. Moliere is definitely pointing out that all of these institutions, philosophy, religion, honor, love, marriage, all of them are ridiculous, absurd, that they are all hypocritical in their own right. And hypocrisy is, at the end of the day, the one thing that Moliere really has his eye on here. Hypocrisy, if there is any one vice that he is really willing to condemn, it's this one. But notice how it ultimately plays out. After Don Louis comes the second time and Don, Don Juan emphasizes instead all of his love and his reform, Don Juan says, yes, I have renounced my wicked way of life. I have become a different person since last night. Heaven has changed me in a moment so completely that it will astound the world. My soul has been touched, my eyes opened, and I look back with horror on the long night of blindness in which I have walked and on the criminal debauchery of the life I have led. Don Louis goes away impressed. The one person whom Don Juan was unhappy with, who he couldn't control and beat, goes away controlled and beaten. Don Juan finally triumphs over his last true opponent by reforming, by changing himself. And yet, when Scannerell says, Oh, sir, I am so glad that you were converted. It's what I have long been waiting for. And now, God be thanked, my wish is granted. And Don Juan says, What on earth is the fool talking about? Did you really take what I said just now for genuine currency? You thought I spoke what was really in my heart? Don Juan has, at long last, become a hypocrite. Like, up until now, he has been earnest. He has been fairly honest with just about everyone. Yeah, he is going to tell both Mathurine and Charlotte that he loves them, but he's not at, ever, at any point going to deny his love for the other person. He is going to stay true to himself at every point, but here, he is willing to go back on it. Here is where Don Juan ultimately says to Don Louis, I will be whoever you want me to be so long as you just go away. I don't care about being honest to myself anymore because it is practical. And again, that's all Don Juan cares about. Two plus two equals four. Four plus four equals eight. It is now advantageous to act like someone he's not. And Don Juan even gets his own speech on this. There's no longer any disgrace in it. Hypocrisy has become a fashionable vice, and all such vices pass for virtues. The mask of a good man is the best mask to wear. At no time could the profession of a hypocrite be carried on more advantageously than today. That sort of imposture is always respected, and even if it is found out, no one dare say anything against it. All other vices come under censure, and everyone is free to rail against them, but hypocrisy is privileged and enjoys special immunity. No one dare open his mouth. By this kind of deceit, one forms a solid pact with all others of the same persuasion. If one is attacked, the rest rush to his defense at once, and even those who act in good faith and are known to be genuinely religious are always the dupes of others. They fall head foremost into the hypocrite's trap and blindly back them up in everything they do. 
Don Juan says here, hypocrisy is a fashionable vice. Everyone is doing it. And because everyone is doing it, all of us hypocrites will back each other up. When one hypocrite is attacked for being a hypocrite, all the other hypocrites are going to join with the first hypocrite and say, no, you are the hypocrite. You are the vicious person. We will back each other up because we will all enjoy the benefits of being a hypocrite, of pretending to be pious and good and religious and right while actually doing whatever it is that we want. Don Juan has discovered that it is way easier to be himself by pretending to be someone else. And Scannerell is mortified by this. God in heaven, I can hardly believe my ears. You only needed hypocrisy to be complete, and that's the worst sin of all. It's no use, sir. I must speak. The last is more than I can stomach. Do to me whatever you like. Strike me. Beat me black and blue. Kill me, if you will. But I must say what is in my heart. It's only my duty as your faithful servant. It's the last straw that breaks the camel's back, sir. Notice, this is it. This is Scannerell's breaking point. This is the vice that is a vice too far. And Scannerell, despite his cowardice, is finally going to speak up and defend what he believes. Defend virtue, defend honor, defend goodness. This is it. This is Moliere's opportunity to strike down the vice that has been plaguing this story from the beginning. To say once and for all that hypocrisy is bad and it will not be forgiven and it is totally wrong. And now, here it is. Scannerell, go! Sir... As that author whose name I have forgotten said very wisely, man in this world is like a bird on a bough. The bough is attached to the tree. Whoever keeps hold of the tree is guided by good principles. Good principles are better than fine words. Fine words are spoken at court. At court, there are courtiers. Courtiers follow the fashion. The fashion is a product of fancy. Fancy is a faculty of the spirit. The spirit is the source of life. Life ends in death. Death makes us think of heaven. Heaven is above the earth. The earth is not the sea. The sea is subject to storms. Storms are dangerous to ships. Ships need a good pilot, and a good pilot is prudent. Prudence is not found in the young. The young owe obedience to the old. The old love riches. Riches make rich men. Rich men are not poor. The poor know necessity. Necessity knows no law, and whoever knows no law lives like a brute beast. QED, you'll be damned forever. It doesn't make any sense! Scannerell had it! Like, he was right there. He was worked up to his fever pitch. He didn't care if John Juan beat him up. And all that comes out of his mouth is nonsense. Platitudes. Platitudes disconnected from one another and just thrown out. And Don Juan even says, an excellent chain of reasoning. Somehow Scannerell thinks he's delivered this really impressive speech on the viciousness of hypocrisy. Like, he still doubles down on it. Like, if that doesn't convince you, nothing will. And yet, it's just ridiculous. All that Moliere wants to say here is, this is the way it is. Like Don Juan, Moliere's ultimate thesis on hypocrisy is, it's pretty damn pragmatic. It works. It does what it wants. You can get a lot done if you are a hypocrite. He is not condemning Don Juan at all. There is no moral comeuppance for Don Juan, except finally, at long last, the statue shows up and drags Don Juan to hell. 
And it's like a footnote. Like, it, it wasn't even a big deal. There's no dramatic pauses. There's no huge buildup. It's not like we're going to see all the victims of Don Juan's seductions who show up at the very end and say, yes, finally, Don Juan got what he deserved. We don't even see, like, Charlotte and Mathurin come back. We don't even know if Don Juan successfully seduced or married them. Moliere doesn't give a shit about it. Moliere doesn't care about the people who is hurt, who has been hurt by Don Juan. Remember, the commander got killed off-screen. We didn't even see that. There were tons of opportunities for us to sympathize with the victims of a Don Juan, and yet Moliere removes that from the play altogether. Instead, Don Juan is just always having a good time. Don Juan is always somebody we want to be like. Don Juan is always one step ahead of everybody else. And at this last moment, the statue shows up and it carries Don Juan to hell. And it's like, what? Why? Why are we suddenly going to be moral about this now? And even at this moment, even at this, which should be like the big moral climax, like there should be a moment of silence and everyone should pause and think about the horror of what has happened to Don Juan. Instead, the person with the last line is Skinnerell. Oh, my wages, my wages. By his death, everyone else is satisfied. Heaven be off he offended. Laws he set at defiance. Girls he seduced. Families he disgraced. Parents he outraged. Wives he ruined. Husbands he drove to distraction. Everyone is content. I, Skinnerell, am the only one to suffer. I, who after so many years' service have no other reward than that of seeing with my own eyes my master's impious behavior punished by the most horrible punishment imaginable. But who will pay my wages? It ends with selfishness. It ends with a joke. A pun. Like the statue's big line is, the wages of sin is death. That's the Bible quote. That's the huge moral here. Don Juan, the wages of sin is death. He who rejects God's mercy stands defenseless before his wrath. And not five minutes after Don Juan is pulled into the earth, Scannerell is banging on about his wages. It didn't stop. Scannerell is just as selfish as Don Juan. Scannerell is just as hypocritical as Don Juan. He is asking for his wages, and in the context, those wages should also be death. He should also be yanked down. But it's a joke. It's played for laughs. It's Scannerell banging on about who's going to pay my bill, who's going to give me the money I'm owed. He doesn't care. Moliere doesn't care. Remember, this is Moliere deliver delivering these lines at the end of the play. But who will pay my wages, he asks. Maybe there's some kind of bitter irony here. Maybe it is supposed to, like, end on a downbeat. But it plays like a joke. Not one moment of this whole play has been serious. And when it finally got serious, it's immediately undercut. Moliere doesn't care about hypocrisy. Moliere doesn't care about Don Juan's awfulness. It's just fun to watch. So let's write a bunch of fun lines and let Don Juan ruin all these people's lives. It's great fun. Who cares? This is why it will ultimately get banned. Like, this is why Don Juan is not going to be performed very frequently. Everyone is mad about this. Everyone is upset at how brazenly Moliere does not give a crap about the morality that is so important to the Catholic Church and to virtually all of the writers we've talked about up until this point. Moliere, in a sense, is playing at being a nihilist here. Like, a legit, no-question nihilist. It's a lot of fun. Like, it's a heck of a play. It's, wait, it's tons of fun to watch. 
But Moliere is not at all even a little bit interested in the morality of the situation. Why should he be? He lives in a 17th century France where, you know, you do what you want to get ahead, and the court of Louis XIV is the absolute representation of Louis XIV doing what he wants, whatever he wants, with no caring for the consequences. He wants to flaunt the church? Fine, who's going to stop him? He wants to flaunt marriage? Fine, who's going to stop him? He wants to flaunt his family? Fine, who's going to stop him? He's an absolute monarch, guys. He does what he wants. Whatever he says is morality now. So what does it matter? Moliere can make his fun play about making fun of the church, about making fun of religion, about making fun of love and philosophy and science and math and who knows what else. Why not? It's a good time. This is atypical of the 17th century, but it's certainly permitted by it. The Baroque is considerably less interested in the grand moral truths that most of our thinkers have been playing on, uh, playing on for all of this time. But keep this in mind as you contrast it with Mozart, because Mozart does have a much greater sense of the morality of the situation. Mozart is way more interested in portraying the actual suffering of the characters that Don Juan wrongs. So when you go on to the opera, keep that in mind. And when you go to write your response paper, think about that as well. Think about how these two portrayals of Don Juan differ and what each author is actually saying about them. 